Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I've got a bit of a treat for you. It's a recording that was made here in Manchester by our friend Dr. George Wills. He's an amazing emergency physician from the USA and he came over here to talk to us about aortic emergencies. Now you can watch the whole video on the St. Emlyn's blog, but actually the audio works really well. And George takes us through the diagnosis, the medical management, and some of the really critically difficult decisions that we have to make sometimes when we see a patient who's crashing in front of us with an aortic dissection in the research room. In all honesty, I think I wished I'd listened to this podcast about two or three years ago because In recent years, I've had some really challenging cases myself, and I think some of the tips and tricks that George gives us here would have been incredibly valuable. So sit back, have a listen, and then maybe just wander over to the blog and have a look at the video as well, because George is a fantastic presenter. But most importantly, learn. And when you do see that incredibly difficult, challenging case in your recess room, remember what George says. Over to you. How's everybody? So I'm really excited to be here. This is a, a wonderful opportunity. This is my first time to Manchester, and I'm, I'm super excited. My wife was supposed to come with me. She had to stay home because I have one, two, three, four children. I know everybody thinks that I'm crazy for having four kids, but I love my kids. They're great, and it's really, really exciting to be here. So thank you guys for having me. I'm going to talk about two cases that you may see in your resuscitation room. This is Jeffrey. Now, Jeffrey is a 63-year-old gentleman. He does have high blood pressure. He smokes intermittently. And he comes in with chest pain and back pain into the emergency department. He's hypertensive. He's tachycardic. He looks like he's in some pretty significant pain. You being the astute providers that you are, get a CT scan on this gentleman. And there is his dissection. While he's getting his CT scan, in comes Jim. Now, Jim is an 83-year-old gentleman who is from Greece, has no medical problems whatsoever, was walking around in Home Depot, which is one of our big hardware stores, and starts to have a little bit of mild abdominal pain, subsequently passes out in the store. Someone freaks out. They call 911. The EMS providers arrive. He wakes up. He says, what's going on? I feel fine. They bring him into the emergency department. He gets off the stretcher and says, I'm perfectly fine. Just let me, leave me be. Blood pressure is a little bit soft, 100 systolic, tachycardic as well, but otherwise looks okay. You put the ultrasound probe on him, and he has this very large AAA. Now, being the astute providers that you are, you call your vascular surgery friends. They're in the OR. They say, good job. You've done everything that you've done, what you were supposed to do. I am in the OR currently with a patient. As soon as I get done with this person, which should be in the next probably 15 or 20 minutes, you can, I'll come get that person, take them right to the operating room. And you think, great. Subsequently, though, blood pressure starts to tank, drops down into the 60s. You call him back and say, hey, this guy's crashing on me. He says, hey, I'm really, really almost done, but I'm still in the OR. And you realize that you're all by yourself. You have no help. And you start to ponder some questions in your mind as you are thinking about these cases. Number one, what is risk management's phone number? (laughs) Number two, why did I agree to switch with Dr. Such and Such? (laughs) And the third one is, did I bring a change of underwear because I think I just had an accident? All right? So we're going to talk about what to do when these aortic catastrophes come into your clinical setting. Okay? So we're going to start off with the dissection. 
that section is something that I'm really, really excited to teach about. It's, I've written some book chapters on it, and it's, it's something that I have 100% taken a really big grain of salt with, with treating because we miss a lot of dissections in the emergency department. This is not an easy diagnosis. A lot of times when we make this diagnosis, this is what we do. Right? You give your partner a high five. You said, I cannot believe that I just made this diagnosis. And it's easy when it's easy. Someone comes in with a classic chest pain radiating down the back. You know it's a dissection. How many of you guys have CT'd a person with that exact story and found it to be negative? Right? <laughs> happens all the time. How many of you guys have caught a dissection on someone you weren't even looking for a dissection on? Right? A lot of us in this room have done that. And this is the more common thing, is when you make that diagnosis, you're giving your partner a high five, and you're moving on. But now you've got to treat the thing. What are you going to do with these patients now that you've made the diagnosis? Of course you're going to call your vascular surgeons or your CT surgeons, but you also have to manage their care while they're in their clinical setting. So let's start off with vascular access. Now these patients are critically ill. You're probably going to need to get some kind of access on them, but do you have to go to central venous access? And the answer to that question is no. Just two nice large bore IVs is all you need. You, I know we're going to be putting these patients on vasoactives, but those vasoactives work with peripheral access just as well as they do with your central venous access. So I don't put central lines in these patients if you don't have to. There's a lot of risks associated with central venous access in these patients. So a peripheral IV or two, if, if, if available, are going to be your primary sources for IV access. What about that daggone arterial line? They are going to need an arterial line because you're going to be starting them on medications for blood pressure, heart rate control, so you're going to need that arterial line in place. But the question that oftentimes comes up with our aortic dissection patients is, where do you put the thing? So let's have this patient right here who looks like Celine without his shirt on. <laughs> you have this lovely gentleman who's having a dissection. You get a blood pressure in one arm, and sure enough, that blood pressure is fine. It's about where you want that goal to be, which we'll talk about shortly, of 105 over 72, and you're thinking that you're doing a good job. But you're not checking the blood pressure in the other arm. Subsequently, that blood pressure is in the 160s. So are you doing the job that you need to be? So my practice and most people's practice with Treating patients with a dissection is to measure the blood pressure on both sides and put the arterial line in the one with the higher blood pressure. So if we start off with this arm with that really elevated blood pressure, once you start treating it with the vasoactive agents, their blood pressure is going to go down. You get to the goal blood pressure that you want. And we don't really care that much about what's going on on the other side. They're perfusing their brain. They're perfusing the part of the body that you want them to. That arm is not as consequential as you think it is. So start off with the highest blood pressure and put the arterial, or the arterial line in that side. And for the most part now, people in the surgery realm have moved to endovascular treatment for aortic dissection. So I try to avoid the groins, the femorals, if you can. Okay? So once you've done the line, the goal in treatment is to worry about blood pressure control as well as heart rate control. And this is where we get into that concept of the pulse pressure DP over DT. Now a lot of people focus on the pressure, but we have to remember that the heart rate is also important. The way that I like to think about this is that whenever that heart is beating, it's like a jackhammer going against the intimal tear that's in the aortic wall. And so if it's fast, it's going to continue to tear it, regardless of how 
lower your blood pressure is. It's going to boom, 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 boom. So you want to decrease the amount of the heart rate. So I set a goal heart rate of 60 beats per minute. This is very low, will make some people uncomfortable, but 60 beats per minute is the ideal heart rate for patients with a dissection. How do we get there? Commonly, we're going to use the vasoactive agents Esmolol, which is the one that we commonly use, short, half-life, titratable, 50 micro, 500 micrograms a minute bolus, and then 50 micrograms and increase titrate up very quickly. If you don't have Esmolol available to you, you can use Labetalol, which gives you a little bit of both heart rate control as well as blood pressure control. If your patients are intolerant to beta blockers, they have severe asthma, severe COPD, you can also use the calcium channel blocker. Typically, diltiazem is the one that's commonly used. It can be used in lieu of your beta blockers. Then you get to your blood pressure control, and your main blood pressure control number goal is 100 to 110 millimeters of mercury. I generally say as long as the patient's mentating, your blood pressure is fine, but you want to get it down as low as you possibly can. Typically, what we're using for this one is sodium nitroprusside. How many of you guys are using sodium nitroprusside in your emergency departments? Okay, so there are some people who are still using it. It has gone the way of the dodo bird. It has become more extinct because there's a lot better medications that are out there. There's a lot of side effects associated with sodium nitroprusside use. If you had that and that's the only thing you have available to you, this is the medication to use. But there are other medications that are out there. The primary one that we're using is nicardipine. Great medication. A little bit longer half-life than we'd like, but it's a great medication to use. Gets the blood pressure under control relatively quickly. But now there's this new sexy drug that's out there. <laughs> and it's called clavidipine. Now, the problems with clavidipine are that it is in lipid emulsion, so it's very similar to propofol or milk of amnesia or what killed Michael Jackson, as some people know it. So it is very similar to that. It needs its own separate line. You can't run it with your other medications, but it's very similar to Esmolol. Short half-life, easy on, easy off, very easily titratable, and it's a great medication to use. Well, how do I know? Because the literature says so. This is a study that was done in 2017 and 2018. Two different journal articles published the same data. And it found that clavidipine was as useful as sodium nitroprusside in controlling blood pressure in your patients with a dissection. So clavidipine works. And this is oftentimes our go-to for patients with a dissection. And then one that we oftentimes forget about is pain control. Maximize your pain control on these patients. This hurts you're going to increase your catecholamine surge, increase that heart rate and that blood pressure, which we're trying to get down. So I use opiates because they're fast and they're easy, easily titratable with IV medications as well. So sometimes I will put patients on a fentanyl drip and use that for patients with a dissection. Then you call your surgeons and say, hey, take this person to the operating room. They tell you, good job. You've done what you were supposed to do. But what happens when that blood pressure which you think you're doing a good job of controlling, all of a sudden starts to tank and get very low. The first thing that most people do is go to that drip. Let's titrate the clavidipine back up. Maybe we have too much medication. And I wanna encourage you guys not to do that. It is most likely not the drip that's causing this person's decompensation. Instead of titrating the drip, go and grab your ultrasound. Your ultrasound is your friend in your hypotensive aortic dissection patients. So what are you looking for with that ultrasound? This. You're looking for tamponade. Tamponade is the number one killer of patients with a dissection. 
54% mortality. If a patient develops a dissection with a tamponade, they're more than likely going to die, especially if you treat them inappropriately. And the most common reason why we treat them inappropriately is because we grab this. They're starting to circle the drain. We think, oh my gosh, this person's hypotensive. They're not mentating okay. Let's intubate them. This is what we call in emergency medicine a clean kill. <laughs> if you intubate your patients with tamponade who have a dissection, you are more likely to have that patient code and die than anything else that you do. So why is that? Well, this is your heart beating. It beats nicely. It's doing a great job. But then it gets tamponade, and once it gets tamponade, it's like a vice grip. Just all of a sudden came along and stopped it from being able to get venous return, stopped it from being able to squeeze as adequately as it's supposed to do. Well, if you intubate a patient with tamponade, now you've got a vice grip on steroids. It's really not going to go anywhere. So you have to think about if you're going to intubate patients. So if you're thinking about it, grab your ultrasound and make sure they don't have tamponade first. Now, we all get excited when we see tamponade. Who gets tamponade in a patient and thinks of this? Because <laughs> you know you're going to tap that. You know you're going to stick a needle in that and tap that tamponade, right? Well... Pericardiocentesis has actually had a negative stigma when it comes to dissection. We were taught that if you stick a needle in a dissection tamponade, you are more likely to kill that patient. Well, why is that? Well, there's data behind it. This is the Isselbacher study that was published in 1994. Ten patients, case review, 13, 13 years, ten patients. Four of them developed tamponade. Three of them died. So what did they claim? There was a 75% mortality when you associated tamponade with a pericardiocentesis with aortic dissection. But there's some studies that have actually shown better outcomes. This is a Hayashi study, which was done in 2012. 18 patients all got tamponade. All of them got pericardiocentesis. They had a zero complication rate with pericardiocentesis. This is the Cruz study that was done in 2015. Six patients, five of them survived, one died. So one out of six died, not from the pericardiocentesis, though. They actually died before they got the needle. They discovered that the person had pericardial tamponade. They tried the pericardiocentesis, got fluid out, got return of spontaneous circulation, continued to die, and then subsequently did pass on. So if you look at the data, you'll actually see a very strong difference. Now, I took the outliers out in, in all of these studies, in the Isselbacher data, the four patients who got pericardiocentesis had on average 163 mLs taken out in their pericardiocentesis. Now that's a lot. It's not really that much. This one patient in this trial who actually survived got 1,200 milliliters taken out in their pericardiocentesis, and they survived. Now it was a chronic dissection. It had been going on for several months, but everybody else died. But if you look at these other studies, they had a significant number less. The, the Hayashi study had 40 mLs, and the Cruz data actually had 23. Now, what you're seeing here is that these patients are not getting a significant amount drained off with the pericardiocentesis. They're getting a small amount, so much so that they actually have a name for it now called CPD, Controlled Pericardial Drainage. Now, you can do this with a needle, which is great, but if you don't have a needle, which everybody in here does, or if you're nervous about it and you want to leave a drain in, 
that's actually preferred, and so you may do a pigtail. But the goal of this therapy is not to take off a significant amount of fluid. It's to take off 5 mLs, 10 mLs, 15 mLs, just to establish hemodynamics, get their systolic blood pressure up to about 80 or 90, and leave them alone, put your hands in your pocket, and slowly back away from the patient. <laughs> that is the goal with controlled pericardial drainage. And it works, okay? So when you have a patient who goes into tamponade, these are the things that I want you to remember. Start off with your IV fluids. IV fluids are paramount, great and useful for your patients with the dissection and tamponade. Then don't fear the needle. If they're starting to get hypotensive or they're starting to arrest, stick a needle in their chest. But don't be over-aggressive about it. 10 mLs, 15 mLs at a time, reestablish hemodynamics. Systolic comes up to about 80 or 90. Put your hands in your pocket slowly back away from the patient. The second thing, if you have not diagnosed tamponade, is that they could be in cardiogenic shock. Now, cardiogenic shock can be from two manifestations. Most commonly is due to the aortic insufficiency that develops from the aortic valve. And the symptoms that they may be experiencing may just be refractory tachycardia. So you start them on the esmolol drip, and their heart rate's not getting better. You could listen to their heart, listen for a murmur, but if you have refractory tachycardia, you might think that this person may be in cardiogenic shock. So again, you want to grab your ultrasound. If you're thinking the aortic valve is, is compromised, you get a parasternal long view, which looks like this, which actually looks like this. And what you're looking for in this, in this patient is you're looking at this aortic root to see if it's dilated. And so here's one of a person who does have a dilated aortic root. And as you can see, there's one, two, three, four, five centimeters of dilatation of that aortic root. And you might even catch the intimal flap that may be in the aortic root. So in this patient, you're not going to do a lot of the same stuff that you were doing. You're going to focus mostly on blood pressure control. The other thing that can manifest to cause cardiogenic shock is they may have had a massive myocardial infarction due to the coronary arteries being malperfused by the intimal flap. And in those circumstances, you're going to have a positive EKG in most of those circumstances. But person comes in with chest pain, you're going to get that EKG anyway. So how do you manage cardiogenic shock? These patients, you get your ultrasound early, make sure that the aortic root looks okay. The aortic root looks okay if you're good at measuring EF. You can measure the EF and see what their EF is doing. Get the EKG and then manage just the blood pressure. Don't focus as much on the heart rate. Lastly, if they're getting hypotensive, they're probably rupturing. Now, this is not something that happens very frequently, but when it does, it's usually fatal. We call it in Maryland the three heart beat rule. I've had two patients who died while signing their consent for their surgery, and they don't go slow. They don't go, you know, I'm starting to feel worse, I'm starting to feel worse, and then die. They say, oh, I'm just going to sign this, <laughs> and they're gone, and they go that quickly. So it's not commonly that you're going to see this. This is more likely to happen in the field prior to them getting to the hospital. Fatal, resuscitate the best you can, get them to the OR as fast as you can. So here's our gentleman. He did well, went to the OR, and got treated appropriately, and had a very good outcome. Now we're going to talk about rupture AAA. But first I want to take home pearls for dissection. Number one, remember your goals. Heart rate of 60, blood pressure 100 to 110, maximize pain control. Secondly, if you have a patient who's crashing on you, get your ultrasound and look for tamponade early. 
And lastly, controlled pericardial drainage. Okay, small amounts. Don't be over-aggressive. Now we're going to talk about ruptured AAA. And this is something that kind of masquerades itself. It doesn't present very atypically. The classic thing we hear about the pulsatile abdominal mass, the flank pain that the patients experience. But they can present in a number of ways, most commonly with syncope. And so most of the time when we're thinking about diagnosing these patients, we're going to send them to the scanner if they're stable or get the ultrasound if they're unstable. But what do you do to manage these very, very critically ill patients? So first and foremost, your first goal, avoid aggressive fluids. This commonly happens in the pre-hospital field as well as in the emergency department. We see a patient who's hypotensive, who's presented with syncope, and subsequently we start them on fluids. But this is one patient population where I would say fluids is more harmful than not. So don't give fluids to these patients if you can avoid it because it's more likely to cause harm. Similar to your blood pressure goals are not the same as you would in your septic patients or even your post-cardiac arrest patients. You want to maintain that systolic blood pressure of around 80 to 90. As long as they're maintaining their mentation, this is the appropriate blood pressure for these patients. The reason why is because here's your aorta, it's ballooned out, and all of a sudden they get a hole in it. Well, eventually they're going to develop a clot, and that clot's going to be like a Band-Aid. But if you start giving them aggressive fluids, start resuscitating them with, with hypertensives or, or vasopressors, what's going to eventually happen is that balloon is going to continue to blow up and blow up until that balloon gets popped off. That clot coming off is going to predispose them to crashing right in front of you. All right, so once they start circling the drain, primary thing to resuscitate these patients is blood, blood, blood. Have a low threshold to activate your massive transfusion protocol in patients with a rupture AAA. And then don't intubate them. Unless they crash and burn on you, if they go into arrest and you need the airway, don't just rush to intubating these patients either. Your RSI medications are more likely to decrease their catecholamine surge, more likely to actually cause them to hemodynamically crump on you due to that decreased venous return. So don't intubate these patients either. So your goals for management in these patients to end up with patients who look like this. This was our gentleman about a week later after he went to the OR. He went to the OR <coughs> coded despite all of our management and then subsequently had a myocardial infarction due to decreased perfusion, but had a really good outcome, did very well, and I've seen him twice since then. So your goals for management for take-home pearls, one, permissive hypotension, keep that systolic blood pressure around 80 to 90. Resuscitative fluid of choice is blood, blood, and blood. Just before you go, we've got a small favor to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the blog and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there, and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free, open access medical education. Thank you for your time. Thank you.